Hello and welcome to Talk of the Town After Hours. I'm Grace Fairchild for WVBR News. Segments for this podcast episode come from our December 12th radio show airing on 93.5, brought to you by reporters Izzy Ferbata, Jade Ovadia, and yours truly. We have three interviews with Cornell professors, including policy analysis and management economist Colleen Carey, and Cornell law professors John Bloom and Jacqueline Kelly Widmer. In my most humble opinion, these are fascinating conversations, so I'm really excited to share them with you. So I have good news and bad news, and I'll start with the bad news. Coronavirus cases are rising rapidly throughout the U.S. and in Tompkins County. Before we discuss the vaccine progress, we'll go to Izzy Ferbata for more about the local COVID situation. The cold winter months have gotten off to a rocky start in Tompkins County as a record-breaking surge of COVID-19 sweeps the community. On Monday, December 7th, the Tompkins County Health Department recorded 61 new positive cases, an all-time high since tracking began in mid-March. Since then, numbers of new infections have remained high, with the county reaching over 300 active cases on Thursday, December 10th. This trend has been reflected in local educational settings. Cornell University's Ithaca campus has recorded over 30 new cases in the past week, and as of December 10th, Ithaca College was reporting 14 active cases. DeWitt Middle School, South Hill Elementary School, and Northeast Elementary School all moved their Friday classes online after a spate of positive tests among staff and students. This flare-up isn't limited to academic settings, as evidenced by a string of potential exposure warnings released by the Tompkins County Health Department. On Saturday, November 28th and Monday, November 30th, a passenger who tested positive for COVID-19 rode the TCAT Route 14S from the Overlook Apartments to Walmart. Additionally, several workers at local stores were recently found to have worked while potentially infectious, leading to a number of possible exposure events. These events occurred at the Home Depot on Elmira Road between December 3rd and 4th, the Walmart on Fairgrounds Memorial Parkway between December 1st and 3rd, the Triphammer Reuse Center on Triphammer Road between December 6th and 8th, the Mahogany Grill on Aurora Street on December 3rd, and the Topps Friendly Markets on Meadow Street between December 5th and 6th. The TCHD has urged anyone who may have been exposed to seek testing at the drive through testing site at the shops at Ithaca Mall, open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m., or at the walk-in testing site at 412 North Tioga Street, open Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Appointments are required and can be scheduled online at cayugahealthsystem.org or by calling 607 319 5708. Testing at these sites is free for all Tompkins County residents. COVID-19 has already had a devastating effect on our community. Within the past three weeks, three residents of the Oak Hill Manor Nursing Home in Ithaca have passed away due to the coronavirus, and many more residents and staff have fallen ill. Local businesses are suffering, and some, including Apollo's Chinese Restaurant in Cornell's College Town neighborhood, have been forced to close their doors for good. The current situation is so dire that Tompkins County Administrator Jason Molino, while speaking to the Ithaca Voice, stated that he believes a new stay-at-home order may be inevitable. In a town hall held on Wednesday, December 9th, Public Health Director Frank Krupa noted that, in the days following Thanksgiving, he saw entire households testing positive for COVID-19. 
The majority of new cases in the community, Krupa emphasized, stem from small holiday gatherings. With another holiday season rapidly approaching, Krupa reiterated the importance of avoiding gatherings outside of your household. Though this may be difficult, the public health director emphasized that vaccinations are forthcoming and residents of Tompkins County just need to hold out for a little while longer. While we wait for the vaccinations to become widely available, we must do our part by following the guidance of the TCHD. This includes washing our hands frequently and thoroughly, staying home as much as possible, and wearing a mask that completely covers the nose and mouth in public spaces. Looking at the profound damage caused by the recent COVID-19 spike, such basic hygiene measures have the potential to save lives and livelihoods. This has been Izzy Frabada for WVBR News. Now, here comes the more encouraging news. After the UK administered the first vaccine last week, the US began vaccinating essential healthcare workers on Monday as of our podcast release. To talk vaccines and distribution, we'll throw it over to Jade Ovadia for her interview with Professor Colleen Carey. The United Kingdom kicked off its COVID-19 vaccination program on Tuesday by delivering the first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. This makes the UK the first Western country to authorize and administer an independently researched vaccine to the public. 90-year-old Margaret Keenan was the first to receive the vaccine, thus beginning the country's plan to immunize all Britons over the age of 50 during the next few months. Directed by medical experts, the country's vaccination distribution plan organized the inoculation priority list into nine tiers. The first priority is being given to the over 400,000 nursing home residents and staff, then fellow healthcare workers and individuals above the age of 80. Priority is then being established by descending five-year age intervals down to participants 50 years old. The rollout of the program will likely serve as a basis for other countries as they prepare their vaccination efforts. One factor setting the UK apart is a low percentage of vaccine skepticism. In an October 2020 survey, 79% of Britons indicated that they would get the vaccine if it was available, in comparison to 64% in the United States and 54% in France. Despite the public's weariness, the Food and Drug Administration recently announced the Pfizer vaccine being distributed in the UK has met their criteria for success. The US could see the first doses of the vaccine being administered as soon as this weekend. This week, the United States recorded the highest number of COVID-related deaths in a week-long period. The steady increase in cases and overwhelming of hospitals makes the need for a successful vaccination distribution even more high stakes. The U.S. is expected to have 6.4 million doses of the vaccine on standby. But less than half will be distributed to the states and 500,000 will be set aside in case of an emergency or future unexpected situation. The other 2.9 million doses will be distributed to the states after the people in the first vaccination round are ready for their second dose 21 days later. Here to speak more about the global and U.S. vaccine distribution plans, Professor Colleen Carey. Uh, My name is Colleen Carey. I'm a professor in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management. Uh, I'm an economist and I work on the healthcare industry with um, special interests in the pharmaceutical industry. That's awesome. So what would you say are the key considerations in developing a vaccine distribution plan? 
so we've never had one quite like this. Um, a lot of our vaccines are uh, administered to children and have been for, you know, decades at this point. And so um, we have we have never uh, we have never had this um, effort of vaccinating, you know, ideally, truly something quite close to the entire population. Um, the closest parallel is uh, the flu vaccine, but we only get about half of the adult population to take the flu vaccine um, in any given year. Um, I, I was just looking at the New York State plan. Um, it looks like relative to the flu vaccine, there may be a little bit more effort to uh, have the vaccine distribution run through um, healthcare providers, meaning doctors, uh, whereas the flu vaccine, you know, a lot of those are provided at, at workplaces or at pharmacies. You know, we've really taken advantage of these um, alternative distribution sites for the flu vaccine. Um, and I, my guess is that they, they want this to be, uh, they just want to make sure that people, that they know who has gotten it. Like they really need to keep track of who has gotten it in a way that is less important for the flu vaccine. You know, we don't, the flu vaccine, it's more, well, so, and it's different for two reasons. So first of all, like we really do want to, you know, confirm vaccination of a, a large amount of the population, but, you know, we also don't want to waste any doses on people who have already been vaccinated in another setting, which, you know, I mean, are there that many people who would try to get vaccinated twice? I don't think so, but but when doses are this scarce, you know, um, it could happen. And, and so we, you know, so I think there's going to be a little bit more emphasis than usual on uh, trying to make this happen in healthcare settings. Maybe that's, maybe that's a function of, you know, the document that I'm looking at, which is, um, actually, I guess this isn't even that current. I wonder if there's been an update to this, but I, I hadn't noticed this date, but I see it now in the um, URL. But uh, so, you know, this was, it may be that like the, the emphasis will change as we move from the first priority, which is clearly about, um, people who are easily reached by the healthcare system, like some of them are the healthcare system. And so, you know, it makes sense to have them vaccinate. I mean, they are getting vaccinated in their workplace more or less. And then the long-term care facilities, same, you know, same thing. Like those people are already very much in touch with the healthcare system. It's not burdensome to say, hey, we're gonna um, vaccinate you, you know, in your residence. Um, but I think, I, I, so maybe that'll change over time, but for the plan that was at least, um, one thing that jumped out at me is that they hadn't, they didn't have a good, like it, it you know, they have a little article here about pharmacies, but it's more like, okay, well, eventually we'll tell you about how we're going to use pharmacies and, um, and workplaces, you know, I could picture Cornell doing the vaccinations themselves, right? Um, but that doesn't seem to be part of New York State's plan. I mean, you know, Cornell does flu vaccinations themselves um, or, you know, on campus they're, they're held. Um, and I'm guessing that that's because they just really need to make sure that the data information on who's getting a vaccine is properly kept, uh, you know, is whatever, properly collected, I should say. That could become an issue. You know, you could imagine Cornell requiring vaccination for returning to campus next fall, 
And I'm not sure exactly how people are going to demonstrate that. You know, right now we have a system that wouldn't be that hard to fake. You know, we have these vaccine cards. Um, we, we could be in a situation where we end up really wanting something that's more verifiable um, and more, yeah, centrally verified than the, what we have right now for demonstrating vaccination, which is I demonstrate my kids' vaccination to their daycare, but I do it by bringing in a piece of paper. I, I could probably fake it if I wanted to, right? Like, <laughs> I don't think anybody's checking up on whether, you know, they don't call the doctor, right? I bring in a piece of paper that says the kid was vaccinated. It, it would be fakeable, you know, it's it's not it's not a special piece of paper. <laughs> that actually kind of segued into my next question about, would you be able to briefly discuss what the United States, like what the what you know about the United States' vaccine distribution plans that they have currently? I mean, the the federal government, this has been a characteristic of all pharma elements of the pandemic. So I just taught my I have I run a I have a class on the pharmaceutical industry that I'm teaching this semester, which has been wonderful actually to um, you know spend such an active <laughs> um, time. And I taught yesterday about um, therapeutics for COVID-19. So there's a couple big ones like remdesivir and um, these recently authorized monoclonal antibody treatments. And those are um, remdesivir is now no longer in shortage. It, it was for a why it, it was first authorized in May and it was in shortage for a lot of the summer, but now it's um, now it's not and uh, and actually has returned to sort of normal pharma distribution patterns. But um, for for most of the time that remdesivir, you know, that for most of the pandemic, and then this is definitely true with the monoclonal antibody treatments, um, the federal government had purchased those directly and then simply sent doses to the states and told the states to figure it out. <laughs> so it's this strange, it's a, that's not, you know, it's not like the federal government purchases, you know, a certain quantity of cholesterol drugs and then mails them to states. You know, that's not how this usually works, um, but that's how they did it in this way. And so, you know, both the vaccine and all these therapeutics, the, the states have had to very quickly come up with plans that try to out get these drugs into patients in a, a fair way. The federal distribution of the of the of the vaccines, you know, which which could start as early as tomorrow, is truly limited to telling the states, here's how many doses we're sending you. And that's all they're doing. I, you know, I think there's probably a little bit of acknowledgement of the political realities. And so especially like um you know, I think the people that decided on that probably were quite realistic about the possibility of a Biden administration taking over. And so they were like, well, look, we need a plan that could easily move between administrations. Like this handoff for the vaccine could be super complicated if the federal government had taken a big role. But instead, it's, um, you know, here's the number of doses that are coming from each of the drug firms. So there's pre-purchase agreements in place. So I, I guess I should clarify that. A huge thing that the federal government did was um, give money to run the clinical trials and then commit to buying a certain number of doses in advance. So that's a massive thing the federal government did. It didn't, it, you know, New York state is not paying for these doses in any way and patients won't pay in any way, but then, once the firms say, okay, we have the doses, 
the feds give them to the states and that that's all that's the end of it from the federal role to my knowledge you know that's that's the end of it that's really interesting because i was looking online too and that that was all that i was seeing and that just seemed very interesting to me as as like their their plan mm -hmm. consider that this plan is effective and if you could make improvements to this plan what would they be okay so first of all i would give states money to um i would make sure that states had uh a lot of money <laughs> to make this happen i just don't want any state feeling like they could do this better or faster if they had money and states are really short i expect that that money will eventually be found but i do think states are right now making vaccine administration plans like new york's that um where they are a little worried about the money so you know even just take that like they want to set up this, they want to extend a pre-existing um, information system that we do use to collect vaccination status. So, you know, we, we aren't starting from scratch, but other states will be. And even extending a system that, that usually collects childhood vaccination data on, you know, maybe 5 million kids to suddenly collect, you know, this, um, this population-wide vaccination data, um, that all takes time to build. And, um, you know, that's a clear cut case where they definitely need money to be able to build these systems. Um, and then other ways in which it, other areas where the state takes on the cost of distribution, like quite literally, you know, like if they do vaccination clinics in prisons, I mean, which they will, um, you know, that's all state that the the prison the states are run by or the prisons are run by the state and so that's like direct expenses to the state there's no chance that anyone else but would pay for that like the states need money for that um it's hard for me to say that the decision to totally direct everything to the state level is bad without seeing how well states do at it i mean i'm guessing we'll have some states that really struggle, like that just don't have good capacity to deal with a task of this magnitude. Um, but I don't want to assume that that will definitely be true. <laughs> so, you know, maybe it'll, maybe we'll kind of muddle through. Um, and maybe there's a plus in that, uh, you know, again, maybe like liberals wouldn't have wanted to take a Trump organized vaccination distribution and conservatives wouldn't want to do a Biden organized vaccination distribution. And so, you know, but maybe they'll trust their states a little bit more. It's hard to say. Do you think any countries or states in particular are best equipped to handle vaccine distribution? Yeah, I mean, my guess is within a couple months, we'll start to, you know, be angry at states at countries like Korea and China who will probably achieve this quite quickly. Um, different um, level of government intervention in personal life and together that will mean that they can probably vaccinate people very quickly. I don't, I mean, my understanding, the US, so the US bought like you know, I said the US government set up these pre-purchase agreements for a lot of the vaccines, right? Like we have bought a bunch of the first wave of available doses ourselves from, I mean, there's um, there's like 58 
vaccines in clinical trials. So, but like the Pfizer, you know, these ones that I think are very trusted and will be available very soon, like Pfizer, Moderna, um, like we have bought the early millions of doses, possibly the early hundreds of millions of doses. Um, so it may be that, you know, Korea is able to vaccinate their population in six weeks, but they can't get any doses <laughs> until the summer, you know, something like that. So, you know, you need both. And I think the U.S. did a good job of securing doses, you know, almost too good of a job, like, you know, we, we're taking all the early doses. I mean, we have a very bad outbreak, <laughs> but, you know, we're taking all the early doses. I mean, Korea worked hard to have almost no outbreak and yet they will not, you know, now they won't, it'll be a while until they can get any, any vaccines, I think. Um, or, you know, maybe they'll get a few for hospital staff and stuff like that, but they won't be able to vaccinate the population on mass until probably we're, you know, we're starting to have low risk people and, and sort of general public. Um, so uh, hard to say. I, I, I guess I just want to emphasize, you know, there are two components of the U.S. situation. Like, I think I could picture it being easier for those countries to do distribution, but they also do need to get a hold of the vaccine. And so they will come to us before anyone else. So this is more of like a, a social aspect of the vaccine. In a 2020 study, only 64% of Americans uh, in an October 2020 study only 64% of Americans indicated that they would get the vaccine if made available. How do you think the skepticism of the vaccine will impact distribution efforts? Um, I mean, there's two ways to get immunity. You can get COVID um, or you can get the vaccine. Um, and that, or you can, you know, never be exposed to the, the virus because we have stamped it out through a combination of the first two. Um, I guess what I would say is I'm, I'm simply not that concerned. If people like, if people don't want to get vaccinated, then, then they don't have to get vaccinated. I think there's a real chance that, um, workplaces will require vaccination. Not every workplace, but some workplaces will require vaccination. Um, that's legal. You know, a lot of hospitals and nursing homes require vaccination. That doesn't mean it's, I should say, I actually happened to talk to a labor lawyer about this. Um, they said, like, you do have to demonstrate that there's a reason for this requirement for your workforce, but there's plenty of workforces where there's plenty of reason to require vaccination. So I think people who um, say that they don't want to get vaccinated. So I think some of them, so this is another reason why I think it could be useful to have some sort of verification, like some of them will be able to demonstrate they have um, antibodies. You know, if I was an employer, I would be happy to take verified cases of naturally acquired antibodies and say, okay, fine, you don't have to get vaccinated. So that would be fine with me if clear, like that you have antibodies. <laughs> so then, but you know, as far as I'm concerned, like let's vaccinate the people who want to get vaccinated first. In the long run, if we need to, we can work on um, getting everyone vaccinated. Um, we may not need to if we can, you know, completely like, look, if, if 60, so that that was 64, you know, I mean, 36% of the population is probably not enough, but it would certainly cut way down. Some of those people may change their mind. 
some of those people may have natural antibodies. You know, we can end the pandemic with incomplete vaccination. We don't need to get every person vaccinated to end the pandemic. Um, you know, a situation where every couple of months there are a hundred cases, you know, in in a small town somewhere, like that's that's not a crisis. You know, I'd be I would rather that that didn't happen, but I I don't think I think we could live with that level of viral activity. You know, we can't live with two hundred thousand cases a day. Um, but we could live with, you know, occasional outbreaks. And so I'm at peace with incomplete vaccination. And I mean, may, I mean, I don't want to be quoted saying this, but like, I just don't have time for them. But like, I just don't have time for them. Like, <laughs> if they don't want to get vaccinated, that's fine. Well, you know, let's vaccinate everyone who wants to get vaccinated and then see where we are. You know, we, we don't have complete vaccination of measles. And yet, you know, life goes on. Like, yeah. There are very, you know, if it, if it turned into something like measles, that would be fine. I mean, even if it was quite a bit worse than the measles situation, that would be fine. You know, we report a lot on those because for some people, it kind of boggles the mind that we have a way to prevent this disease and many people won't take it. But it's not like it's a crisis that there are occasional measles outbreaks. Or I at least think it would be much more manageable for the healthcare system to deal with like smaller outbreaks. In exactly. And you know the the other situation too. So like I said, I I presented in my class on therapeutics on drugs. Yeah. So like that situation is also rapidly improving. So it could be that within another couple of months, you know, even if we had a couple thousand cases a day, um, we have those people don't die, yeah. and you know the severe cases don't get that bad, and like we're you know, that, that situation is also rapidly improving. So I don't think we have to get to COVID zero. I think we have to get to, um, we have to get to a situation where uh, the deaths aren't overwhelming and, and yeah, that the health system is not being overwhelmed, but I don't think we need to get to COVID zero. And so in that sense, I'm not super concerned about vaccine denial. Um, so we touched on this a little bit in the beginning. How do you believe the presidential transition of power will impact vaccine distribution? Um, I do think this very state-based distribution plan is simple enough that it's not, you know, and all this stuff about the pre-buying of doses and stuff, that's already done. You know, the Biden administration will face continued questions around getting enough doses, but I think they, they you know, this there's no question this is their number one priority. And I'm sure they're already working on it now and I don't know how much cooperation they're getting, but I do think the state-based distribution plan is, is gonna help with that transition. But I would be worried about states where the governor's house changed hands. Like it could be quite complicated to, you know, that could be a real disruption given how much states are being asked to do. Thank you, Colleen, for your insight into the vaccine distribution efforts. This is Jade Ovadia reporting for WVBR News. Just when you think 2020 can't get any darker, this year seems to find a way. Since the summer, the Department of Justice under Attorney General William Barr has carried out 10 federal death row executions. For context, it's important to understand that most death penalty cases happen at the state level, and no one has been executed under federal law since 2003, when there was one execution. Taking the pandemic into consideration, most states have postponed executions this year, but the Department of Justice pushes forward. 
In the twilight hours of the administration, President Trump's DOJ is scheduling more executions to take place before the inauguration of Joe Biden in January. To understand the federal death penalty issues in more context, I interviewed Cornell Law Professor and Director of the Cornell Death Penalty Project, John Bloom. Professor Bloom, thank you for joining us on Talk of the Town. Sure, happy to be here. Before we begin the most pressing news topics, um, could you give us an idea of the classes that you teach pertaining to the death penalty and also what the Cornell Death Penalty Project does? Sure. Um, so I teach, uh, among other things, uh, a course called the Death Penalty in America, which is a historical overview of the uh, of the death penalty in the United States. And then most of my academic research and writing uh, is about uh, the death penalty, capital punishment. I do empirical research uh, along with some of my colleagues on the way the death penalty works in the United States. Okay, and what does the Cornell Death Penalty Project do? Uh, it has, it's multifaceted. Uh, it does, re we do research um, uh, about the death penalty and uh, the current administration of the death penalty, primarily in the United States, but we do some international work. Uh, and then we also, uh, the second aspect of it is what's called a clinic, a clinical course where the students work uh, on capital cases. Okay. So now, I'll like, now I'd like to go into the federal executions that have been carried out um, by DOJ since July. Um, so this kind of goes back to a Supreme Court case regarding lethal injection, um, and it paved the way for the first federal execution in 17 years. Um, so can you explain how that case enabled um, the eight executions that have taken place since July? Uh, well, there had been um, there had been ongoing litigation uh, in the in the federal cases about. Uh, the protocol and how they were going to carry out the executions and the quality of the drugs and where they got them and how they were being used. And so that was a case that was going on uh, in the, in federal court in the District of Columbia. Uh, and uh, despite the fact that that litigation was still going, they went and set the execution dates in several of these cases. Uh, and so uh, what happened was is a federal court of appeals uh, enjoined, uh, basically put a stay, said, federal government, you can't kill this person. Uh, and the, uh, the government appealed that, the Department of Justice appealed that to the Supreme Court of the United States, and they vacated the preliminary injunction. Uh, they didn't technically rule on the merits of the challenge to pentobarbital. A lot of this was about whether pentobarbital, uh, executing someone with one drug, pentobarbital, is likely to cause like, extreme pain and suffering because of something called flash pulmonary edema. Uh, so they didn't technically say that's okay, but in the, it, by vacating the injunction and what they said uh, about it in general uh, has green-lighted these federal executions. Okay, so then we'll kind of turn to the topic of the year, um, which is COVID. So many states throughout the country have postponed executions um, this year because of the extenuating circumstances of the pandemic. Um, but the Department of Justice um, under AG Barr um, kind of keeps going for the most part. Um, so what are your thoughts on the implications that uh, COVID has on federal executions resuming this year? Um, and what does it kind of say about the uh, Department of Justice's choices um, when compared to the state's choices uh, to just uh, postpone a lot of these executions? 
Well, you're right. A majority of the states have decided not to try and execute people uh, during uh, the pandemic. And that's uh, because, I mean, prisons are easy places to become super spreader events because of the way people are housed and uh, and the way, fact that you have the staff coming in and out and interacting with them all the time. So uh, most states have said we're not going to execute some people until this gets a little more under control. Uh, the federal government has taken uh, the opposite approach. Uh, I firmly believe this is because they know that uh, once that President Biden is sworn in, the federal executions are over. So they're trying to cram as many of these in as they can uh, between now and January. Uh, it's incredibly uh, foolhardy and insensitive. I mean, there's been a number of cases which are documented have been tied to the executions and trying to carry out the executions or carrying out the executions of Terre Haute. Uh, and there's no reason to believe that these uh, coming executions are not going to also be super spreader events like the others. And there have been some people that have died as a result of them. So uh, it's not just the, uh, the destinist inmates who uh, are getting executed here. Many of the people who uh, are, partic are participating or have to be there uh, you know, for example, Lisa Montgomery's lawyers both uh, came down with COVID after visiting her at Terre Haute. So uh, this is uh, incredibly risky behavior, but uh, they seem to not care. Right. So just to kind of follow up on that, what is your sense of why the Trump administration is trying to cram so many federal executions in before Biden takes office? Um, well, I think, you uh, President Trump has uh, you know, always been a very vocal supporter of the death penalty for many years, even before he was president. Uh, as you may remember, he was out advocating for the death penalty for the Central Park Five, even though it turned out they were ultimately uh, wrongfully convicted of something they didn't do. So he's a, a strong supporter of the death penalty. And, uh, Attorney General Barr is another strong supporter of the death penalty. Uh, and uh, I think that they didn't really get around to try and do this early on in the administration because uh, there was just so much chaos, especially in the Department of Justice under Attorney General Sessions, who was obviously also a strong supporter of the death penalty, but they had other things to get through with the impeachment and the, and the Russia probe. Uh, and so I think they're focusing on this at the end. And, and I see it as just really uh, another attempt to appeal to the president's base, right? This is, a, uh, this is an issue for the most part, you know, most Americans uh, don't really care about the death penalty that much anymore. I mean, public support is way down for it. Uh, most states aren't executing uh, many people these days. I mean, even uh, in places that, you know, like Texas and uh, Florida, the number of new death sentences is way down. Uh, but it's still very popular among the president's base, among evangelical white Christians uh, and others. So I think it, just like a lot of things he's doing now are meant to sort of solidify his position with the base, potentially preserve his ability to run again in 2024. I think this is just all part of that larger uh, effort uh, and one that they feel the need to do because, I mean, uh, President like Biden has been very clear that he no longer supports the death penalty and uh, is going to impose a federal moratorium on executions once he comes into office. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. We're heading into the home stretch of this episode. For this last interview, I spoke with another Cornell Law professor, Jacqueline Kelly Widmer, about the reinstatement of DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Nice to talk to you. 
Nice to speak with you too. Thank you so much for agreeing for an interview. And my title is actually technically Associate Clinical Professor of Law. Okay. And um, and yes, and I founded and direct the One L Immigration Law and Advocacy Clinic at Cornell. Before we get into the most recent DACA developments, could you describe some of the classes on immigration law that you teach? Yes, absolutely. So at Cornell Law School, I primarily teach lawyering, which is a legal skills class for first-year law students. And I teach about legal writing and research and oral advocacy skills. And that really feeds directly to the other class that I teach, which is the 1L Immigration Law and Advocacy Clinic. The clinic is basically like a mini law firm inside the law school. The law school has a lot of different clinics, but the one that I teach focuses on immigration representation, and the law students are first-year law students. Okay, excellent. Um, so now we'll turn to the recent DACA developments. Um, could you kind of explain the uh, federal ruling that came from a district court judge this week uh, that impacted DACA? Yes, definitely. So uh, essentially what the federal court ruling from the last couple of days does is opens up DACA for um, for folks who have never applied before and um, it reinstates the 2012 original DACA that was um, put forth by President Obama. And that has not been open since 2017 when the Trump administration rescinded DACA. Ever since the 2017 rescission, because of litigation, there has been the ability for folks who already had DACA to continue to reapply for DACA or renew their DACA, which has to be done every two years. But anybody who'd never had it before couldn't get it for the first time. And the federal judge over the past month first said that um, that the Trump administration's decision not to fully reinstate DACA after the Supreme Court ruling was unlawful, but because of the technicality that the acting director of the Department of Homeland Security was not rightfully appointed. Then several more weeks passed and the government didn't do anything to reopen DACA and that federal judge came out last week and said, you got to do it. You got to do it by Monday. And so uh, we've seen that reopening just the last couple of days. Wow. Um, so that's quite a chain of events. So what <laughs> yes. the right, right. Um, so what does the um, application process look like now for uh, like potential DACA recipients? Yes, so folks who already have DACA can renew, as I said, and that is a relatively straightforward process, and my clinic handles that for a lot of Cornell law students, I mean, sorry, Cornell students, uh, not necessarily law students, could be law students, um, and other members of the ISCA and Cornell communities. But the DACA initial applications, which are now finally reopened, are uh, quite a bit more complex, mainly because the requirements for DACA have not been changed since that first 2012 DACA announcement, um, which had a look back period of five years. That means that anyone to be eligible for DACA has to have been in the United States since June 15, 2007. We're looking at 13 and a half years ago. And so now to prove that someone meets that qualification, they have to provide evidence showing 
dated official evidence like school records and dental bills, things like that, if possible, showing that they've been here since then and not just a, a piece of paper from 2007 and one from yesterday, but uh, documentation to support their presence throughout those 13 and a half years. That's in addition wow. to other requirements, but that's the biggest hurdle right now for my clients who are planning to apply for the first time. Wow, yeah, that seems like quite an obstacle. Um, as the Biden administration transitions in January, do you see any forthcoming changes to that requirement that might make it easier for folks to apply for DACA? I hope to see that. I think that what Biden has promised to do is at, at least in the first 100 days is to reinstate 2012 DACA, which is what this court order sort of jumped the gun and did um, for him. But he is going to have a harder time expanding DACA's parameters because to do that requires a, a reissuing of the program or a new executive order, and that is going to be subject to litigation. Uh, just like President Obama's uh, 2014 attempt to expand the parameters of DACA. He already tried to do that by extending the look-back period to 2010 instead of 2007, but that didn't go through. In fact, a Supreme Court ruled on that, that um, and did not, did not permit extended DACA in the past. So I think Biden will try to expand DACA, but he... Um, may face some challenges there. And he has also said that he will try to bring a bill to Congress, which really is the only permanent and effective way to create a path for these dreamers. Right. So, yes, definitely. Congressional legislation would be ideal for this issue. Um, do you have hope for that um, in the upcoming uh, presidential term? Well, um, I always maintain hope, <laughs> but <laughs> I think that it will be a tough sell in part because uh, we are not totally sure yet how the Senate is going to shake out. But um, but that is going to be really, really important to seeing if we can get any traction on this issue. But I'll note that the first DREAM Act that would have protected this community was proposed in 2001. We've seen it proposed as a bipartisan piece of legislation 10 to 15 or more times since then, and it has not gone anywhere. It's been sitting um, approved. The most recent one has been approved by the House and has been sitting in the Senate, and uh, our Senate is just not looking at it. And so if we don't get new leadership in the Senate, I don't have huge hopes for such a bill to be passed. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, do you have any other comments uh, that you would want to make before we go? Uh, sure, yes. One other thing that I think is really exciting about the reopened order, uh, I mean, reopening of DACA and the ability for people to apply for the first time, that's really exciting. But it also means that people can apply for the first time for a travel document called advanced parole. Um, that was part of 2012 DACA and allowed DACA recipients to travel for humanitarian or employment or education reasons. Um, and during uh, the pre-rescission era, I helped many people travel to visit their grandparents who are elderly or to study abroad. And um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to once again help folks who do have DACA 
to be able to take advantage of travel. Although, of course, we have the COVID restrictions. It's not the perfect time to travel, um, but the possibilities reopened, and that's exciting. Right, it definitely is. And hopefully, as vaccines um, emerge and are able to be distributed, um, those dreamers will be able to travel more with uh, this reinstatement of DACA. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Um, so I will cut to this one. And that's all we have for this episode of After Hours. Thank you, as always, for listening and supporting Cornell's radio journalists. Back to the good news, bad news thing, the good news being that we've nearly reached the end of the fall semester and the news department will be getting a much needed winter break. The bad news is that with this break, we only have one more radio show and podcast episode to go in 2020. So don't miss our live show airing on 93.5 FM and WBBR.com on Saturday, December 19th at 3 p.m. And come back here next week for the last episode of After Hours for the semester. For episode updates and articles, visit WVBR.com news or follow us on social media. We're at WVBR FM News on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we'd love to hear from you. Stay safe, stay warm. For WVBR News, I'm Grace Fairchild.